following program contains themes and topics that may be disturbing for some. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Any Given Day, a podcast series sharing the stories of those who dedicate their careers to serving others. On any given day, the more than 800,000 law enforcement officers in the United States witness the best of community and confront the worst of society. The profession requires a resilient mind every single day. In this season, we hear the stories of how law enforcement officers navigate the unique stress of their job from the men and women who live them. Each week, they remind us, on any given day, you face the unknown, and on every single day, you carry on. On this episode, we're speaking with Adam Stone. He's a police officer in Arlington County, Virginia, for 31 years and counting. He has no fear in sharing his personal story, and for that, we're thankful to have him on the show today. Adam, welcome to Any Given Day. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate being here. Um, so, you know, this podcast is about the, the real lives that law enforcement officers live day in and day out. There can be some tough moments um, and some positive moments, but let's start at the very beginning and talk about first, what made you choose to go into law enforcement? Well, um, I, I wanted to do two things when I was a kid, either be the fire pilot or be a cop. Um, and realizing after I realized how much math was involved in flying, then it was definitely police work for me. And my other big thing was I was a big fan of comic books and, um, always the, um, the good guys, uh, doing the right thing for the most part. And, um, rather than, uh, run around in uh, blue and white spandex, I thought it would be better just to join the police department. <laughs> I'd be able to uh, accomplish a lot more uh, that way. And um, math just, teachers uh, don't have your f- feelings hurt out there, but <laughs> <laughs> but also, you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> and good call on the spandex, too. <laughs> uh, but I just uh, I, I grew up watching chips and um, and TV shows like that, um, and just really loved the idea of doing it. Um, my my, I don't have any other police in my family. My uh, dad's a dentist, and um, he actually had the opportunity to uh, join the New York State Police, but his dad convinced him to uh, just give school one more try, one more year of a try, and then he um, he took that route. But uh, fortunately, he's able to live vicariously through me and my stories, whatever, whatever ones I exaggerate or not. But, um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Well, speaking of stories, and we're always happy that cops are never uh, shy about sharing them. Nope. Do you have a couple favorite moments in policing that you want to share with us? Any? Well, I, um, I tried. I'm in uh, traffic enforcement. I've been on the department since 90, been in uh, the motorcycle unit since 94. And um, always try my best to make uh, people laugh um, under adverse circumstances. And it's mostly just regular traffic stops. But um, I, I try to tell a couple of good jokes here and there. Some of them, I think, are a lot more funny than, than they do. And, and that's okay. I remember um, I stopped this one lady who had a, um, for an HOV violation for a high occupancy vehicle lane. And she had a fake baby. Um, in the car seat when I had stopped her and I was almost about to let her go. And then I was like, wait a second. So I noticed that the, it was a fake baby and I wrote the ticket and I was like, I was just going to 
I was going to try to keep my New York sarcasm in check, but I failed. And uh, just as I'm giving her the ticket, I go, hey, you know, the baby, she she has your nose. That's pretty, pretty good luck on your part. And that, that didn't go over too well. And then my other favorite one was I was writing a ticket. Um, it was around Christmas time. And this, uh, this woman said to me, she goes, you know, it's not very Christian of you to write me a ticket so close to Christmas. And I said, well, ma'am, considering I'm Jewish, I don't expect it to be. And I wrote tickets during all eight days of Hanukkah and nobody complained. <laughs> but I always uh, I always have, uh, try to even writing tickets. I try to you know, make it as a positive experience as possible. And uh, I find that humor goes a long way. And ninety nine percent of the people appreciate it. And um, at least they can go away with a smile and, uh, and a hundred and fifty dollar ticket. So it uh, hopefully bounces out by the time they get down the road. Well, I appreciate you sharing those kind of humorous moments. I can imagine that being in law enforcement, you know, there's those funny moments and then there's some tough moments too. Do you want to spend a little time talking about some of the harder parts of the job? Yeah. So um, in my particular line of work, um, dealing with, you know, I I halfway joke that since I'm a traffic cop, I don't have to do any real police work. So I'm not going in on too many domestics and and those type of calls, but obviously respond to a lot of accidents and have seen seen a lot of uh, fatal accidents over the course of my time. And that... um, you don't realize it when you're younger, you're a younger officer, and you uh, try to put up a little bit of bravado uh, that it uh, doesn't affect you. And um, as I've learned over the years, it's not the one, the first incident, or the third or fourth, but over time, those incidents uh, start to take a little chink out of the armor. And um, if you're not dealing with that in a in in a, in a way that's going to make you be able to go on to the next call and be helpful to the next uh, person that needs you. Um, it's going to take a toll on you down the road. And uh, for me, um, because of some stuff that happened earlier on in my life that um, and me not uh, addressing things in in a, in a way that I knew how, I, I didn't have the uh, the tools to uh, to process those things and uh, just sort of let it uh, sit in the uh, in the macho box, and uh, eventually that box uh, got full and started to spill over. Often people do think there's a singular incident as it relates to trauma, but it can be several things piling up over time. You've been quoted before as saying that every day is like recovery, and since we've been talking so far, you've mentioned that there were some things that were filling up your bucket or that you were placing in the macho box over time. Give us a little sense of what that feels like. It's, it's, well, for me, it was, uh, it was, uh, very close to a, uh, to suicide. Um, and a young Adam would look at that as being, being weak and not being able to, uh, to manage things in, uh, in, in one's mind. Um, but, uh, this Adam, who is fortunately much smarter now, and uh, but through having to hit rock bottom to really start to be able to uh, peel back the layers, um, it's it's so much easier to see, and and my ability to be able to address things is so much better. And um, if you'd like, I can start uh, talking about how I got to where um, I had uh, gotten to the position where I thought that um, suicide was the uh, was the best option for me. Please. So for me, I uh, grew up on Eastern Long Island. I had a, a 
great childhood. Um, like I said, I was fortunate that my uh, my dad was a dentist, so it's um, you know upper middle class and uh, a good life. Um, uh, my parents are still together to this day after sixty six years, so it's um, lucky in that regard. Uh, but unfortunately for me, and I was, uh, I went to uh, summer camp, and uh, over the course of two summers, when I was about twelve and thirteen years of age, I was sexually abused by a male camp counselor, and that took place um, over the over the months of the uh, of the summer of the summer camp. Um, I didn't say anything to anybody at the time, in the in the way of processing it and and having a little being able to to look at it through uh through a clearer picture is that i was dealing with um being involved in something that obviously i knew it was wrong i felt it was wrong um but uh there was also a physical pleasure involved um and that at a young age or at any age but especially at a young age and puberty and you know still formulating the brain is still processing things um i uh that got stuck in my head and um with me not being being wanting to share it with anyone i just pushed it down and said that i can overcome this and that um things are going to be okay um even though i knew it wasn't um wasn't uh, normal and you know part of it was probably just not wanting to upset my parents and not sure how they would react i um found that afterwards you know obviously they were very supportive and uh, willing and wanting to uh get me um, any type of help that uh, i may have needed and unfortunately um i'll share with you because of that and because it involved the male camp counselor um that i as a as a young teen that was very uh, homophobic for many years until I was uh, smart enough and mature enough to uh, separate the two and realize that uh, one was not connected to the other. And then as a, as a teenage, as a older teenager and, and starting, I, uh, I was uh, late in, uh, in dating and, uh, and being involved with anyone. I just didn't, uh, I just wasn't able to, uh, to make any type of connection and um was uh was just very shy with uh, with the opposite sex and um not um just because of what happened and uh just internal fears of how how was how how i was feeling and how things were supposed to how things were supposed to be in a normal type of situation it made made it difficult for me and did you experience that even as you were coming into your career in law enforcement Yes. Yeah. And so as, um, as I came into law enforcement, um, even still, as far as uh, relationships, I then quickly learned, fortunately, unfortunate situation that um, being in uniform presents a lot of uh, opportunities, um, good and bad, um, but, but as far as relationship goes, and then in dealing with uh people who just saw you as the uniform and not seeing you as a person. Um, but at the same time, I, you know, I'm certainly guilty of uh, taking advantage of the situation also. And by taking advantage, I, I would um, uh, put myself in relationships that I knew were not going to be healthy uh, emotionally and, and physically. And, um, and then even if I was in a, uh, 
healthy relationship with someone that cared about me and wanted things to 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 grow, uh, I felt guilty about feeling good. And my alternate, my mechanism in dealing with uh, with putting myself back in a certain line of uh, feeling bad about myself was to uh, get involved in another relationship that wasn't uh, the one that I was uh, supposedly in a committed relationship uh, with that person. So there are vices that people rely on when they're struggling, and often it's drugs or alcohol. I I really appreciate you being so open because it sounds like you were using relationships and sex with women as your outlet for feelings and emotions that you were still trying to process and put together. Right. And and the other thing is I, you know, I certainly am aware of the psychology of me not only taking a macho job but a very macho macho job inside of uh, uh, macho jobs, I mean, on the motorcycle unit. And um, I'm, I'm sure I can be examined for, for, for months on end by, by people in that field to, uh, to the how and why I got here. Um, at the same time, I think um, me being in this job, and I, I certainly done a lot more good and, and seen a lot more good than, uh, than the bad stuff, that's for sure. And that, that, that makes up for, for it 100 times a day. Yeah. Um, is there a crystallizing time period in which you said, I am not healthy and I am struggling and it's reached a point of danger? Yeah. So I was a uh, first responder to the Pentagon uh, during 9-11. I got there just a few minutes after the uh, plane had struck. Um, I got on, uh, got on my motorcycle and uh, headed down there and, um, the one thing that I remember um, is as I was coming down, and I can see the smoke, obviously, but the smell of uh, concrete and uh, kerosene, which was the jet fuel. And um, that smell is, is embedded in, in, in my brain and will be for the rest of my life. Um, everyone is coming on the first hour of the incident, and then 16 hours from now, you don't have people to, fresh people well-rested people to come in and backfill. So, uh, but that's a lesson learned thing. Um, and also a, a fatigue issue because now you're working 16, 18 hours, uh, resting with the little backfill in between and then, uh, not having enough sleep and all the anxiety that's coming with the next day, that type of thing. And, and, you know, as any cop with the type A personality, there's, there's nothing I can, I mean, there's literally nothing I can do about it. I can only handle what's around me and, you know, 10 feet around me in a, in a circle, and, and that's about it. So you mentioned already sort of the sights and, and smells. I'm sure there was some physical reaction to all of this, too. And can you talk a little bit about that and then how it also started to feel in, in the out years? Yes. So about six months after the fact, um, I'm driving down the road. There is a song playing on the radio. Um, and as I'm driving, this weird liquid is coming out of my eyes, uh, because of the song. And I realize that I am crying. Um, and I'm like, there's, there is something not right here. Uh, but I remember in the, in, from the day of the incident for months afterwards, our employee assistants came out and they said, you know, you might be experiencing this and that. And, you know, cops being cops are like, thanks, thanks. Go back to your Subaru and your Birkenstocks and we'll take care of the uh, of the hard work here. Um, but, um, you know, they, they basically laid out 
if you're going to have a reaction, when it's going to happen, and what type of reactions you might have. And for me, it was pretty much textbook with, uh, with about four to six months in between the incident and uh, some type of a physical uh, reaction. And did you believe, um, excuse me for interrupting, but did you believe hmm? them when they told you that? When, when they said no. you're going to have this feeling after no. everything you've already been through? No. Y- you didn't believe it? Didn't believe it. I am, I am way, I thought to myself, I am way too tough for that. And it's not going to happen to me. <laughs> um, and, uh, and it, but I'll t- tell you in the meantime, I've heard, I heard about people like uh, leaving on a, uh, or putting in for a mental health disability. And I'm like, I, my thought was, what did you think you were going to run into when you got into this job? And just being so naive, and uh, it's so silly to think about it now. Um, but I, when I heard people putting in for that type of stuff, um, I, I can understand. I was able to understand people putting in for like health reasons, like physical health reasons. But I wasn't smart enough to treat uh, mental health, um, but just like anyone would treat a physical ailment. Um, so once I, don't know I anything to do with smarts, but you definitely right, were right. not ready for that message yet. <laughs> right, right. So once I got home, I was like, I, I got to go see somebody. So I went to see our EAP. They referred me out to go talk to a psychologist or a therapist. I went and spoke with them, uh, got referred to take some medication, did that for about six or seven months, felt better. And I said, you know what? I'm good to go. Don't need this anymore. Um, And was it hard for you to make the choice to do that? Or did it feel like kind of routine because this is what others in your department were experiencing? To start or stop? To go see the doctor in the first place. Uh, Like, What what was that uh, initial, like, okay, I really do... I'm going to go. You know, that, what, it, it wasn't as difficult as I thought, only because fortunately the EAP was was really pushing it on a, on a with a pretty solid message, um, not daily, but enough to to make it where it seemed that I was say, in a safe enough environment and uh, comfortable enough environment as far as confidentiality that um, things would be okay. I started feeling off again and um, then went back medication and i started really treating this like a uh like a like flu season uh, rather than a long-term illness but before that i was married had uh had a son have a son he's uh just about 29 years old now his mother and i got divorced um in between i was in and out of relationships um in a just not uh, nothing healthy, nothing uh, solid, nothing healthy. And then um, at that time, did you see that this was a something that might have felt familiar to you, given the relationships that you had when you were younger? Did you make any sort of parallels there? No, I, I, I wasn't. I, I wasn't making the connection. I was uh, just using it as my drug of choice, and so it, I, I wasn't uh, at the time wasn't able to make the connection. But looking back, when you when you sort of parallel the times, do you see some familiarity there? Yeah, That's looking back for sure, it was um, it definitely was a an unhealthy uh, unhealthy drug um, and an unhealthy and again uh, not only emotionally for me some um, put myself in uh, not the best um, environment um, to be safe um, physically safe and then. Um, 
And again, uh, the, the worst part was um, people who thought that we were in a solid uh, monogamous relationship. Um, I, uh, I failed them in that regard and uh, not able to communicate um, what I was going through and, and the how and the why. Um, so um, I certainly was keeping my emotional distance from the uh, from from my partner at the time and um, and really not having the ability to make any type of uh, emotional intimate connection with anybody. And I don't want to pry too much, or I'm I'm not a psychologist, uh, but I'm just I'm just wondering, did it feel uncomfortable to you at the time, or was it satisfying? Did you feel safe because you were walled off, or was there were there moments and elements of sort of being alone that felt uncomfortable? Uh, the being alone part felt uncomfortable. Um, I knew that I was going to feel terrible after the fact, and that was good by me. That's where I wanted to be. Yeah. So being alone was not comfortable, but being lonely was familiar. Yes. Yes. Being emotionally lonely was, was familiar and comfortable. Yeah. That's a good, great way to put it. And, and things that worked were, were fine. I am, uh, and, and I was another part of the problem was at work, I'm truth, justice in the American way and always <laughs> trying to do the right thing and to the best of my abilities having the opportunity to do so many cool things just because we're on the motorcycle unit in the DC area. I, you know, I, I'm, one of my jokes is that I've gotten to use the restrooms in some of the most secure facilities in the DC area. That's usually as far as I get once I get the S motorcade from point A to point B. Um, but I, um, so great cop, a high performer, um, but a, uh, not uh, a lousy, uh, allows the uh, relationship partner to be in. And those two, those two worlds eventually collided. Um, I got married um, in 2011 and uh, normal relationship. Um, although I, you know, in, in hindsight, I am, I, my choice of who I was going to be with um, was, um, Again, probably not. I didn't have the best uh, <laughs> the best radar for, for that type of stuff, and so I made the best of the relationship. I thought I and I tried to make it as normal as possible, as normal as I thought things should be or or could be. Um, and then a couple of years into the marriage, we started having some issues. Um, and again, I uh, part of it certainly was uh, my lack of communication. Um, and as things were, as we were emotionally separating, um, I got involved with somebody, um, during the course of the marriage, outside of the marriage, um, my wife at the time had found out, um, although I was trying my best to, uh, to hide it, even though I knew she knew and just trying to do my best to mitigate the circumstances. Um, but then I got, uh, there was a point where I just, I, I just didn't care. I, I just didn't care. And um, so I'd be riding around and I was hoping that I would just either get like run over or something bad would happen to me. I wasn't putting myself in harm's way, but I was uh, in the back of my head. I was hoping that something would uh, would happen. Um, and then eventually I put myself in a position where, um, 
my wife at the time would 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 we'd get I'd get caught and um she had found out and then we went back home to get and we were arguing um within the house. Um I was in uniform um and she went down the hallway to the kitchen and I was alone in the bedroom. Um and for some reason I at that point I was uh I decided that I was done and that it would be best for me uh to not uh to not be alive anymore. And so I walked into I went to my closet and grabbed my off-duty gun. I don't know why I did that because I had my on-duty gun with me and it might be just a sense of the uh of the uniform and uh, and the pride I had in that. that I, I don't know. But I walked into the bathroom and um there was a uh, there was a tall mirror there so I can see myself. But while I'm looking at myself in the mirror, I am also looking at myself sort of like an outer body experience where I can see everything that is going on from an outside perspective. Um, and it's probably because of the mirror. So that, that psychological effect is going on. Um, and I remember thinking to myself of putting the gun to my head and thinking to myself of feeling the barrel and squeezing the trigger and falling to the ground. I'm, I'm thinking about this. Um, I don't recall if I actually brought the gun up to my head. I just, I don't, it was, everything was very cloudy and I just don't know for sure. Um, but what I call it is my 30 second cloud that lasted for about 22 seconds. And at some point I started to hear my dog barking. And, and as, as it was going on before that, it, you almost, the effects of, that I was going through are almost like being in a shooting. You get some auditory exclusion, tunnel vision, um, you're losing your fine motor skills. Everything that would happen in a, uh, like if you're involved in a police-involved shooting or some high-stress incident was going on. And um, and then my wife was uh, able to open the door. And uh, once I saw that, and between the dog barking and everything else, I just sort of collapsed to the ground. And um, um, it was just emotionally spent. And just on the floor, just uh, just lost, just lost, completely lost. This is the first time that I, I mean, I go into detail, but it's the first time that I've uh, I've um, been able to put out as detailed information. I, I think the reason I'm, I find it so important to put myself out there is so um, that uh, someone else is, uh, gets some help before they get to the position that I was in. In the days and months leading up to that very poignant moment of you looking in the mirror, did you feel alone and isolated? And did you wonder or know if your fellow officers were feeling alone and isolated too, but no one was talking about it? I, I knew that there were some other officers on the department and had gone through similar issues. I will tell you as my as I was aware that I was, uh, that things were wrong and that it was becoming apparent to coworkers, especially, um, supervisors. I was, uh, sneaky enough. I don't want to say savvy enough, but definitely sneaky enough to know that I said, you know what, I'm going to go to EAP and just to put up a little bit of a shield and, uh, give them about 10% of the information. So this way I've built in a little, uh, little comfort zone between me and people recognizing that something is uh, 
something is off with Adam. Um, so you were still worried after all of the outreach, after all of the conversations about how a 9-11 response may affect you or cause delayed reactions. You still were uncomfortable and unable to, or uh, not unable, but un, un Unwilling. <laughs> unwilling, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I was trying to, like, uninspired. I, I wasn't trying to find the, the right word, and with all respect, I, of it just it hadn't hit you yet that help could be helpful. I, I knew it was there. I knew that there were people, like I said, that had gone through the same thing and I that were back to being active, productive uh, law enforcement people. Um, I was just afraid that I was going to going to lose my job, even though I, I knew, I knew that um, if I reached out that it wasn't going to be the case, but I, I didn't, I knew it, but I didn't believe it. I'm wondering if, if any of the feelings too were knowing there was some stuff there under the surface that maybe hadn't boiled up to the top yet that might come out if you got started. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I mean, if we just took, if we took the job away completely, there was so much other crap that I had going on that, um, that I hadn't dealt with. And, and, and even when I saw the therapists earlier, I was giving them just enough. I wasn't uh, being a, being a hundred percent. And the key to therapy, for, if you, if you, if you go there is you got to be completely open because they can, if you only give them, give them two pieces of information, they're going to give you two pieces of advice back on how to process that. And even though you got a thousand other things and, um, it, uh, once I, was completely open with the therapy and with myself. It was literally, I was given the, the roadmap to my brain to say, this is how, if this happens, this happens. It's like a maze and, and you can easily follow it. And it was comforting knowing that my situation, my responses, um, my behavior, certainly not alone. Um, it's, it's, it's a, it's, study after study after person after person. You might not meet everything on the checklist, but as I'm going, you know, it's, it's certainly things are much easier to, and not that you should self-diagnose and self-heal, but just to gather more information on online these days. And you look at some of these, these lists of things that people go through and you're like, yes, 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 no, yes, 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 yes. And you, and you realize that it's compiled from thousands of different people and you're not alone. And even though you feel like it, and there's no way to, no way to convince yourself that you, you're not the only one um, because you feel completely isolated and by yourself. Um, during these tough times, is there something that helped you or is there someone that you admire for how they handle adversity that got you through? One quick story and then there's someone who, who I admire. Um, I, was, I remember after I got back to work, I... Um, uh, and it was cleared by the doctor. They uh, they said, okay, well, we got an escort at the White House. Um, we need you to go get the president. And I'm thinking to myself, you realize I just got out of the hospital. And um, so as I, I'm like, okay, so because I'm only in the lead car uh, at the motorcade. So I pull up to the gate. And for some reason in my mind, I'm thinking that like the Secret Service has this special list of people who have been in the in the hospital. So I'm like, oh my God, they're not going to let me in the gate. And so I'm like, Stone, here to escort. They're like, Okay, go ahead. And I'm like, true, made it this far. Uh, things are looking good, and uh, yeah, they don't they don't have a secret list. So, and the department treated me fantastic. We are really really lucky. Uh, aside, you know, obviously from my my dad and my parents, who I love, and my my family, who I love and adore. I uh, one of my biggest heroes is um, 
Lieutenant Michael Murphy, who uh, was the Navy SEAL that received the Medal of Honor. Um, he got killed in Afghanistan. His story was uh, from with Marcus Luttrell, lone survivor. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the movie or the book, um, but um, his dad, Dan Murphy, is um, who's carried on his son's legacy um, and has uh, taken me under his wing almost as a as a, another son. Um, he's uh, one of the people I really, really admire and his ability to overcome a tragedy like that and uh, make it into such a, uh, make his son's legacy with between um, uh, scholarships and sea cadet um, um, uh, posts that they have on Long Island and um, his dad's involved. They just, uh, Putting the finishing touches on uh, the Michael Murphy uh, Museum on Long Island, and uh, just his dad is uh, really a great inspiration for me, and uh, makes me—I'm proud to be his friend, and uh, that he's accepted me in his family the way he has. Thank you for sharing your story on any given day. If you're struggling or know a law enforcement professional who is, get help now. There are many resources, including the following. Call 911 if emergent help is needed. Safe Call Now is a confidential 24-hour crisis referral service for public safety employees and can be reached at 206-459-3020. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available 24 hours a day at 800-273-8255. You are not alone. Stay safe. Nothing heard on this podcast should be considered medical advice, and its contents is not intended to substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a health care provider for that information. The views expressed are solely of the individuals who share them. Thank you to the parents of Chris Dudley, U.S. Marshal Service, for sponsoring this episode. A special thank you to Ron Brooks and Ben Bodden for dedicating their efforts to any given day. They, along with Mike Walker, Mark Espinoza, Matthew Brandt, Patrick Lillis, and James Vandermeer lent their time, advice, and wisdom. And thank you to Ruben at New Record Studios for technical support and production guidance. The Any Given Day podcast is created by the families and friends of LEOs who have died too soon. It is in honor of how they lived.